Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today is December 31st, 2023. And at least here on the East Coast of the United States, it is 315, which means that we have, you know, not that many hours left in the year 2023. So I am going to read the last part of the essay that I have been reading, The Labor of Women in the Soviet Economy. And I just want to wish everybody a happy new year. I realize that in some parts of the world, it is already 2024, but we're kind of cruising in that direction. And I intend to start drinking fairly soon. So I've decided that I would record this podcast before I, I had my first drink, although it might be fun to, to have a drink with you all. Maybe I'll join at the end with a drink. Anyway, I just wanted to give everybody a heads up that on December 22nd, I was on Dan Snow's History Hit podcast in the UK. I was talking about Pythagoras's utopia as well as the utopian experiments of the Bogomils. I'm not sure how well known this podcast is in the United States, but it's a pretty well known podcast in the UK. And I will leave a link in the show notes. The episode's only about a half an hour. But if you're interested in hearing me talk about these two interesting historical utopian experiments, please check out my appearance on Dan Snow's show, History hit. So it has been one hell of a year, I have to say. And I am hoping that 2024 won't be the utter fascist hellscape that I am fearing it will become. You never know. I'm glad that we made it. Most of us at least made it through the end of 2023. There have been a lot of challenges, and I know a lot of people out there are greatly suffering. And I want to send positive vibes and attention to everyone who is barely scraping through this year. It's a dark time of the year, and a lot of people can feel really lonely and isolated and depressed about the absolute shit show that the world is right now. And so if you're out there listening and you're thinking about all the awful things that are going on in the world, you know, my heart goes out to you. I send you a lot of sympathy and empathy and want you to all know that there are many of us who are trying to make a better world, fighting for causes of justice and peace and hoping that the poly crises that we find ourselves living through will at some point come to a reasonable conclusion, or at least will be mitigated by something, hopefully human action, hopefully working together to stop all of the horrible and disgusting things that are going on in the world today. So I'm not going to preach. That's not my job. I'm going to do a little podcast about Alexandra Kolontai, and especially this piece where she's laying out the things that the Soviet government did for women back in 1921 when it was written. So here's part three of The Labor of Women in the Evolution of the Economy. The task of Soviet power is thus to provide conditions for the woman where her labor will not be spent on non-productive work about the home and looking after children, but on the creation of new wealth for the state, for the labor collective. 
At the same time, it is important to preserve not only the interest of the woman, but also the life of the child. And this is to be done by giving the woman the opportunity to combine labor and maternity. Soviet power tries to create a situation where a woman does not have to cling to a man she has grown to loathe only because she has nowhere else to go with her children, and where a woman alone does not have to fear for her life or the life of her child. In the labor republic, it is not the philanthropists with their humiliating charity, but the workers and peasants, fellow creators of the new society who hasten to help the working woman and strive to lighten the burden of motherhood. The woman who bears the trials and tribulations of reconstructing the economy on an equal footing with the man and who participated in the Civil War has a right to demand that in this most important hour of her life, at the moment when she presents society with a new member, the Labor Republic, the collective, should take upon itself the job for caring for the future of the new citizen. Russia now has 524 Protections of Motherhood and Social Education Sections. This is, nevertheless, insufficient. The transitional nature of the dictatorship of the proletariat places women in a particularly difficult situation. The old is destroyed, but the new has not yet been created. The party and Soviet power must, during this period, pay increasing attention to the problem of maternity and the methods of solving it. If correct answers are found to these questions, not only women, but also the national economy will gain. Okay, I just want to pause right here to reflect on this previous paragraph where I just read that in Soviet Russia, Kolontai imagines that the Soviet economy will allow for women to be free from men they loathe, and that single mothers and single women will not fear for themselves or their children. This is a really interesting moment because, of course, right now, Colin Tai is really talking about the sexual emancipation of women. She's talking about the economic autonomy of women. She's talking about the ways in which the socialization of motherhood, the ways in which the collective can help care for children, can help raise future citizens, will actually free women from their economic dependence on men. And this is a really core part of this essay. And I really want to emphasize that point because, as I'm sure many of you know, I wrote this book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And it's this section of this essay which really is explicit in how Kolontai believes that the socialization of what is often called socially reproductive labor is a key component of the liberation of women in any society, but particularly in a capitalist society. So then what follows after the paragraph that I just read are these two paragraphs on abortion. And as you know, the Soviet Union was the first country in the world in 1920 to legalize abortion for the first trimester, medically available for all women for any reason. And she explains why abortion, why this policy was implemented in the Soviet Union. But at the same time, she sort of maintains this very pro-natalist stance, which is that women should have children because it's a social obligation to create new workers and laborers for the world's first worker state. 
So Colin Tai, you know, has this incredibly liberal impulse in terms of reproductive freedoms and reproductive rights for women. But at the same time, she also recognizes that abortion in 1920 was a necessity for women because the standard of living for women was so low, wages were so low, and there were all these orphans that were being created. There were a lot of problems in the Soviet Union. The Soviet economy just could not afford to fully socialize care for unwanted children. And so abortion became the way medical, you know, safe abortion became the way that they tried to deal with the structural problems of the Soviet economy in 1920. And so this last paragraph is a way of Kolontai explaining that in the future, abortion won't be necessary or women won't feel the need to have abortions for economic reasons. They won't be living in circumstances where they're crushed by their dual responsibilities for both maternity and labor. Now, any of you who know the history of the 20th century will know that no communist country, no country in Eastern Europe, no social democratic country for that matter, has really ever completely alleviated the tensions of trying to combine family and work for particularly women, but really for all parents. It's still very difficult for parents all over the world to balance out the competing demands of work and family, which are extremely, in a capitalist economy, sort of extractive of our time and our affection and our emotion. Okay, so this is the last paragraph. Besides the large-scale development of motherhood protection, the task of Labor Russia is to strengthen in women the healthy instinct of motherhood, to make motherhood and labor for the collective compatible, and thus do away with the need for abortion. This is the approach of the Labor Republic to the question of abortion, which still faces women in the bourgeois countries in all its magnitude. In these countries, women are exhausted by the dual burden of hired labor for capital and motherhood. In Soviet Russia, the working woman and peasant woman are helping the Communist Party to build a new society and to undermine the old way of life that has enslaved women. As soon as woman is viewed as being essentially a labor unit, the key to the solution of the complex question of maternity can be found. In bourgeois society, where housework complements the system of capitalist economy and private property creates a stable basis for the isolated form of the family, there is no way out for the working woman. The emancipation of women can only be completed when a fundamental transformation of living is effective, and lifestyles will change only with the fundamental transformation of all production and the establishment of a communist economy. The revolution in everyday life is unfolding before our very eyes, and in this process, the liberation of women is being introduced in practice. Okay. So that's the end of the essay. And here again, you can hear in the tone of Kolontai's writing how optimistic she is, maybe, you know, a little bit too optimistic about what the Soviet economy is going to be able to do in order to liberate the Soviet woman from these burdens of productive labor in the formal economy and socially reproductive labor in the private economy or in the private home. 
And for those of you who are familiar with socialist feminist ideas, you can see in this last paragraph everything that sort of forms the foundation of a lot of socialist feminist thought can be found in this piece of writing. I mean, Kolontai is really talking about the ways in which the capitalist economy exploits the social reproductive labor of women in the home, that housework complements this system because capitalists are able to reproduce the labor force essentially for free because they're extracting all of this surplus from women's unpaid labor in the home. And then also the way that private property, she says, creates a stable basis for the isolated form of the family, the ways in which the family is this intergenerational unit that allows for the transfer of wealth and privilege from fathers to their legitimate sons, and therefore families need to stay isolated. And as I've said so many times on this podcast, the whole idea of troubling the boundaries of the nuclear family, of expanding out and creating these lateral networks of kin and kith and connection is precisely to create these more egalitarian societies by recognizing that family ties, particularly these nuclear family ties, these bourgeois nuclear family ties that are often associated with single family homes and private property and exclusive biparental care for your own biological offspring, that whole model helps to preserve really high levels of inequality. And if we want to tackle inequality, if we want to tackle the problems that we're facing in the 21st century, there are lots of things that we can learn from this essay of Kolontai in 1921, because she's really pointing out the ways in which the family and this particular vision of the family, this bourgeois family form that we've inherited, is really part of the crux of the problem. If you're going to Reimagine society. If you're going to reimagine the way in which social relations and productive relations, both in the economy and in the home, are going to change, it has to often start in our personal lives. It's not enough to just reimagine the economy and the polity and the public sphere. We also have to think really critically about the private sphere and the way in which we instantiate our own political commitments within the private sphere. This this means with our family members, this means with our friends, our colleagues, our comrades, our neighbors, this means with, you know, the people in our broader communities, our weak ties, social scientists and psychologists sometimes call them the weak ties, the people that you might chat with at the grocery store, or the folks at the farmer's market, or maybe the people that you meet walking your dog, or any sorts of kind of random or spontaneous social interactions that you might have with people in your wider community, those sorts of interactions are also really important. And so as we end 2023, I want to send out a, a message, I suppose, of hope and um, solidarity, but also this really important idea that what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, the way that we interact with each other, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we share our time and we share our affection and we share our emotions, that is really important political work. And I know I've said this before, but I think it bears emphasizing because at this time of year, people can feel so isolated and alone and depressed and overwhelmed. And the 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 whole kind of burden of the poly crises that we're facing can really weigh heavy on us, especially because, you know, it's cold out there if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's, it's hard sometimes to feel connected and to feel like 
there's something out there that's worth starting a new year for, especially given that there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world, I think, in 2024. So on that note, I think I'm going to pause for a second. I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to get a bottle of bubbles, and I think I might grab my daughter, and we will open the bottle and then wish everybody a happy new year. Okay, so I am back. And I'm here too. With my daughter, yes. Yes, And we have... Bubbles. We have bubbles for the new year. Bubbles for the new year. So we are going to pop this bottle if I can actually... You don't need to do that. Well, where's the screw? Oh, I already did that thing. (laughs) Okay. I already took the protective wire off. All right. Now here we go. Three, two, two, one. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right. Give me your glass. Let's... uh, Little ASMR. Little ASMR for everybody out there who's uh, interested in clinking glasses. That's the sound of the bottle clinking. Why are you doing that? I don't know, just to make some sounds. Pouring sounds. Can you hear pouring sounds? Probably. Probably you can hear pouring. You're pretty close to the mic. I'm pretty close to the mic. So if you can hear the pouring sounds, it's because I'm boring. No. All right. Cheers. So cheers. Happy New Year. All the best for 2024. All the best. Everybody in, in out the there. New Year. We hope that everybody I know is healthy is, and is healthy and happy and safe. Safe. And, and that, that they, they keep, keep up the good fight. fight. Clink clink. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.